You're tuned into Open Source Craft. The world runs on open source and we speak to the people who shape the world. I'm here with Trey Hunter. He's just back from Pi Caribbean, a Python conference in the Caribbean. Um, he's a director at the Python Foundation, helps organize the San Diego Python Users Group. He runs a live chat, a live weekly chat for Python developers. And he's the founder of Truthful Technology, where he teaches corporate Python training in person, wherever you are. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a Pi Caribbean. That sounds awesome. Was it awesome? It was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just as you'd expect. It was very warm. Uh, everyone there said that 60 degrees was the coldest they'd ever felt, uh, pretty <laughs> much. And it, uh, it had a very kind of islandy, laid-back feel. Awesome. Yeah. And what did you speak on there? Uh, readability. My talk was Readability Counts, which I stole from the Zen of Python. Interesting. So can you give us some, some of the high-level summary of the talk? Yeah, so um, white space, structure your code. So basically where to put your line breaks for the most part. Uh, naming things. Um, where do you put your line breaks? So line breaks, you want to separate uh, logical parts of your code. So if you're writing a list comprehension, don't put it all on one long line. Split that over multiple lines and put the, the separate parts of that, the logical parts of that comprehension on separate lines. White space is your friend. Okay. Um, naming things descriptively and giving things names that are, uh, giving unnamed things a name mm -hmm. uh, and then using the right construct, the right tool for the right job. Nice. That's kind of the summary. Did your talk get a good response? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it was a very small crowd because it was a regional conference, but smaller crowds are kind of more my thing because uh, I, like, I like speaking to a small group of people rather than a big room personally. Yeah, it's less um, intimidating. That's great. I remember in the Ruby community, I went to some really amazing regional conferences. Sometimes they're even more um, educational and just effective, just because yeah. you have a small group. Well, and you feel like you can meet everyone at the conference because there's you know a hundred or a couple hundred people there, maybe a few hundred people there, mm -hmm. and you go, I can see everyone in the room at this moment. I could go meet that person at lunch. Was it single track? Uh, no, it was multi-track, huh. which is interesting. Uh, and I think they wanted it multi-track so that they could have smaller crowds and more speakers. Oh, yeah, that's nice. Yeah. Um, cool. So, uh, talk to me about your first contribution to open source. Yeah. So this is an interesting one because um, I don't know what counts as a contribution to open source, but I, I think the one that probably counts the most is when I was uh, a kid. I was in high school. I didn't. I was learning Linux, learning programming, and I found a shell script that converted uh, MP3 files to OGG files. And I decided OGG files were open source. So I was going to use OGG files because those were cooler. That, <laughs> that wasn't actually a useful thing to do, but yeah. uh, I was using that shell script to do that. And I added a couple command line flags to do something. I don't even remember what. And I emailed it back to the author because his email was on his website. And um, he thanked me. He seemed really gracious, and he he released on his website a, like a new a new version that said Trey switches, and it was version, you know, he bumped the the major version up. Um, that was really exciting because I was not even out of high school yet, and someone seemed to appreciate something that I did. I mean, I guess he thought I was amazing for using his code, and I thought he was amazing for having released this thing. So it's kind of fun, mutual respect. That's great. How old were you? Uh, Probably like 15 or so. Oh, that's I, awesome. I don't remember which year it was, but um, yeah. Wow, so you were a, a hacker from an early age. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to find uh, web development through a family friend early on. Oh, wow, that's great. 
And then I think you said you did some open source in college. Yeah. Um, Man, I wish I would have had a college course that like required me to commit some open source. That yes. would have been phenomenal. Yeah, I had one uh, professor. Actually, I think he was a lecturer. Um, I think he might. Uh, Dr. Paul Eggert. Uh, he's in the man pages of a lot of uh, Linux tools. Um, huh. I took mul every class I could take with him, I took. Uh, he did a software engineering class and it involved contributing to open source projects. So mm. you were required to attempt to contribute to something and I chose Wine, mm -hmm. uh, which there were mentors there and there was someone from Wine and that was really exciting because I knew what Wine was. That's great. Yeah. Um, so out of college, you mentioned that um, before we started the interview that you went straight into freelancing. I've heard of many people that are able to go from college straight into freelancing. Yeah, that was, that was luck, um, a lot of luck. Uh, a friend of mine uh, from high school was starting a company, asked if I could help him over winter break uh, write some Python code. And I said, you know, I, in my programming languages class, I did Python for a week. It seemed fun, so I could probably figure it out. And we went from there. So I, I was contributing over winter break. They just kept using me. Afterwards, they said, you know, could you just keep working with us? Mm. At some point, I told them I was going to double my rate because I was getting, I was charging them what I was being paid on campus for an on-campus job, not, you know, realizing that freelancers make a lot more money. Okay. Um, and so I was still not making as much money as most people make freelancing, but I, I charged them more. And I just kind of kept going. And I was fortunate enough to be able to move in with my dad for a while until I found more work by accident. By accident? Yes. I'd, so I did not consciously uh, succeed at being a freelancer very well, but I accidentally su succeeded in some ways. Um, <laughs> so going to meetup groups was a thing that I did uh, because I wanted to meet people. I didn't have coworkers because I was freelancing. Uh -huh. uh, I didn't really have coworkers, so I went to meetup groups to meet other people who wrote code, did Python, and I found referral work through that, through the mailing list there as well as in person because people would remember that I said I did Python freelancing. They didn't know anyone else who did that. Someone needed work, they'd send them my way. Just local here in San Diego? Yeah, local in San Diego. Like what or kind of meetup groups? Uh, uh, San Diego Python group. Oh, uh, and sense. well, actually, the first one was the San Diego Hacker News group, um, and they didn't even Hacker care. News Hacker News, yeah. So I don't read Hacker News anymore. Um, I used to read Hacker News, and I regularly attended the San Diego Hacker News group. It was the first meetup-like thing that I found out about. It wasn't even on Meetup.com actually, mm. uh, but I found a job through the mailing list there, and that was local. I did get some work through folks who I met through the group who knew other people elsewhere, though. That was a, a big referral mechanism, but that, that took a little bit more time. Yeah, you know, I find that the, I'm a big proponent of meetup groups being where you go to look for a job, yeah. where you go to hire people, because yeah. that's where you find the people who are most passionate about what they do. They're willing to spend their spare time continuing to learn their craft. Yeah, I mean, not everyone has the privilege of having that spare time. Same with open source contributions, you know. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, for sure, it is a, a place to meet people who are also interested in what you're doing. And I, I mean, making business relationships and friendships are not all that different. Right. And it's not good enough, though, like just to go. Right. You have to be willing to put yourself out there, meet people, network, yep. ask for work if you want it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and getting up in front of a crowd and giving a talk is one of the best icebreakers because then mm -hmm. everyone in the room has a thing to talk to you about afterwards. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, we, uh, totally. I totally, completely get that. That's what, yeah. one of the reasons I loved going to conferences. Is and speaking of conferences, it was one year, maybe like eight, nine years ago, where I was like, I'm going to submit a talk, many conferences I can. I'm going to yeah. go out to as many conferences and speak there. And what you come to realize after a few of them is you're like, oh, some of these actually aren't worth my time because um, there's a ton of tech conferences out there. But yeah. I loved going and yeah, doing the talk and that breaks the ice and then you get to meet people. But I almost also realized that I recently that I kind of always use that as a crutch. Like I am less nervous about meeting people if they've seen, I've basically shown them that I'm competent. Right. And now I get to meet them, and they're more, more, they're less likely to be mean to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's for me, it's like I won't really want to be likable, and I don't want people to ignore me, and um, so I feel um, less scared. Right. If I know I talk, and they they know me, or they've seen work that I've done, um, and so. I initially would look at it and go, oh yeah, it's so great because it's an icebreaker. Yeah. And I get to meet people and, you know, I don't, but then I, the more I reflected on it, the more I realized that part of that's coming from my own insecurity. Right. About having the courage to go up to somebody who has no idea who I am and say hello. Right. Which I need to get better at. Yeah. Well, and I've got a little bit of that. I also have a little bit of the opposite in the sense that, um, I'm a little bit afraid that people might think that I know something that I don't or assume that I know something that I don't. Oh, yeah. And so I, I don't like introducing myself with fancy titles to people usually because, you know, if I told someone I was a director at the Python Software Foundation, they think that's some glorious thing that I know what I'm doing. And I don't want them to think that <laughs> <laughs> because then they'll ask me questions that I don't know how to answer. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, so we're, we're here in San Diego. This, this is Trey's place, by the way. And thank you for letting us... Uh, did the interview here and Welcome. last night I did a talk in front of uh, what was the group it was just sort of uh, put on by the de the developer boot camp yep a girl developer I know was one of the groups that co-organized I don't uh -huh. know how many others did and I noticed I gave the talk and then we had some Q&A and I noticed about five minutes in the Q&A that all of a sudden I started sweating and um, I was like oh my goodness I'm still really like I like presenting, but as soon as somebody asks me, a qu I'm like scared to death that someone's going to ask me a question that I have no clue what the answer is yeah. about. And so what is the fear there? I'm afraid that I'm going to look incompetent. But the truth of the matter is, you know, if some, what is it really, what, if somebody asks you a question, you don't know it and you go, you know, that's a great question. I honestly don't know the answer. Does, it, does anybody else here know the answer? That's the trick that I yeah. found. I mean, if you're at a conference, someone asks that question. It's because someone else in the room is going to have, a, a, might probably has the answer to that, and they'd be happy to speak up. Um, and it doesn't make me look incompetent if I confidently say, that's a good question, I honestly don't know. Or I'm afraid yeah. I might not have the right answer. Not so, a little personal detour, detour there, but um, I totally can associate with that feeling of, not wanting to be asked questions I don't have the answer to. Yeah. That's fear. So I'm f afraid of looking incompetent. Well, and saying you don't know is hard. I feel like saying you don't know, uh, doing it more quickly than not, I think is a, a, the way that I kind of practice it. Where I say I don't know when I feel like I kind of know, and then we kind of backpedal a little bit. And I go, well, maybe I, I, I know. I don't know if I know, though. And then we kind of go into that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can, do, I can do that too sometimes. But I've also realized 
sometimes I go too quickly to the I don't know. Like they'll ask me a question, I'll have a suspicion, I'll say I don't know, but in reality what I should do is just stop and say, let me think about it for a second. And then take a pause or say, you know, maybe it's this, I'm not sure. Rather than immediately jumping to the I don't know. That, I'm, yeah. Something I've been realizing too. Um, all right, but let's get back to that. So freelancing right out of college, you found work through meetups, through yeah. referrals. That's awesome. San Diego has a really strong um, just tech community, it seems, with lots of meetups. It's definitely growing and strengthening. You know, we've got a little bit of a, a spread out geography compared to some places, and we're definitely not a tech mecca like, like San Francisco, but um, we definitely have a, a community that tries to stick together. Yeah. Um, and then you found your way from maybe teaching at some meetups to doing workshops. Yeah. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so my most comfortable teaching medium is one-on-one. I mean, sitting like this, having a conversation, you've got some kind of problem with your computer, we can talk about that. Um, and so running a workshop, actually volunteering at a workshop was the way I, one of the ways I got active in that meetup. Probably the way I became one of the co-organizers at some point. And helping develop curriculum for a workshop was one, I thought that was really fun. Uh, using Sphinx and Read the Docs, I think, you know, open source tools that, mm-hmm. that could allow me to write curriculum. Uh, and put that out there, something that was self-paced. And so we made a workshop with a Django and test-driven development. So you could learn either you know, both at the same time or if you already knew Django, maybe you were just there for the test-driven development part. And I was kind of the mastermind with that curriculum in the sense that uh, you know, different voices were there and I kind of put them together a little bit. Uh, and I wasn't great at that, but you know, it definitely kind of encouraged me. I thought that was really fun. That's so great. writing curriculum and then uh, doing workshop-driven training through that, mm-hmm. I was excited about. And I've got a quote here. Um, Carol Willing, also a director at the Python Software Foundation, told me a little bit about you. She okay. said, Trey inspires me with his love of programming, his impact as a teacher, and his selfless leadership. While Trey is both an excellent Python and JavaScript developer, he has a gift for sharing his knowledge with others. He explains difficult concepts clearly, patiently demonstrates them with examples, and encourages questions. Carol is an amazing person to know. Uh, (laughs) Wait, first say thank you. Thank you, Carol. I really appreciate (laughs) that. Um, uh, I don't know, Carol is one of those people that, um, you know, I may not think of myself in a certain way that's special, Mm -hmm. uh, but she can really uh, make you realize uh, the the special part of you. Um, there's there's multiple people in the San Diego Python community who are amazing. Uh, Carol is one of them. Nice. I really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, it, it's really clear that um, as we get further in your story about you know when you started doing more teaching, you realize like that you really um, that you really like it. You really love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so from doing the workshops to landing, to, to, to getting hired to do more of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, How so that was a little weird because I was doing Django uh, freelance work, free consulting. Workshop. Yeah, well, so they were free workshops yeah. and I was getting paid to do consulting work. Right. Uh, and then I told everyone I was a front-end developer for a while. I went through a phase, I guess, where I was only doing front-end work. Okay. And then during that phase, I got a, um, a, someone reached out 
and said, hey, our very large company uh, needs training. Uh, would you like to come on site and do a class for us? And I let them know that I'd never done a class, but I was very interested in doing it because I'd done curriculum for workshops. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, I'm very comfortable with in-person on uh, teaching. Mm-hmm. And I did that. I, I quoted them what I thought was a, a large amount of money. Uh, because for me, doing consulting work, there's always the problem of scope. And there's no scope problem when you're doing training. So that was really interesting that I could give them a, a number and we could agree on that before the job was even done, um, which I, I thought was really cool. And they said yes. And then I decided from there I was going to try to only do training. So I haven't done consulting work since, uh, well, non-training-based consulting work since uh, 2016, uh, 2015, I guess. Yeah, summer 2015. That's interesting. I think what's interesting about that is that I think a lot of people will see um, technical trainers working there professionally, and they go, well, mm-hmm. how, how do I get started doing that? <laughs> and it seems like you've you kind of just showed us there's yeah. a really good path about doing community free workshops, maybe through meetups, getting good at them through doing those for free, mm-hmm. and then taking the step from there to doing paid. Yeah, well, and it's, it's somewhat similar with freelance work, I'd say, I didn't realize that at the time, but mm-hmm. uh, whenever you're trying to get into something new, you know, get your feet wet and mm-hmm. slowly get into it, and then at some point when you keep telling people that that is a thing that you're interested in doing, an opportunity might fall in your lap that allows you to kind of embrace it. And I, I wasn't even telling people I was training. Mm. And so that was, that was amazing to me that that happened without me even making that call. Um, but then after the fact, once I had that first one, I decided I was all in. I was going to tell people I was doing training. Just start doing it. If you've got a passion, just do it a lot. Yeah. Well, and, and find help if you need it. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, you don't have to do it on your own. And um, fake it until you make it works, but it works when you have people to help you out with the uh, making it. That's great. And then I think some people might say, but I don't have any money to pay somebody to help me. What would you say to um, that? Mentorship. I mean, you, have, you can make friends and you can help <laughs> each other out mutually. You, you can uh, make friends. You can make friends. <laughs> <laughs> I did it a couple times. <laughs> Uh, meetups, actually. So uh, the interesting thing about meetups, doing freelance work, making a friendship, so networking. I don't like the term networking because nobody likes the term networking. Uh-huh. Uh, but networking is really just making friends. Yeah, totally. And so making friends, if you have someone who you're going to do business with, making a friend first and then a business partner later is a, a better way to do things. I or if you're going to have a business partner or a, someone you're a client Make sure that you're on the same page as far as, you know, being cool with working with each other. You're mutually compatible. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Um, one uh, quote that you said earlier, um, productized services are amazing. Yes. Say more about that. So uh, if you are doing consulting work and you work hourly, uh-huh. you are trading time for money and nobody cares about your time. They care about the thing that you're delivering, that whatever that value you're delivering is. And so if you can figure out the, the pain of that value, what that value is uh, costing them, mm-hmm. or rather what that, that problem is costing them, that's the value of the service. Maybe you divide that by 10, that's the cost of the service, and hopefully you divide that by 10 and that's how much it actually uh, costs you. So mm-hmm. there's cost, price, and value. And 
I've been reading and listening to podcasts and books and such by a lot of freelance folks who talk about this. And, anything you can recommend? Uh, yeah, the Freelancer Show, um, anything Jonathan Stark has done, uh, Brennan Dunn, his uh, book, uh, W Freelancing Rate, uh, Sean D'Souza's The Brain Audit. There's a whole bunch of links that I send to people okay. uh, who are getting into freelance work because people always ask me that. If you know, I'm freelancing, they find out, they want to know what books I recommend. If there's, you're tuning in right now, I'll link all those in the show notes. Yeah, and there's probably better ones, but those are the ones I found. Okay. And uh, they, they really inspired me. So productized services, the whole idea is you have a service, it has a cost, it has clear value that's being delivered, you can convey that and that value proposition people know going into it. Mm. As opposed to, you pay me X thousands of dollars between these numbers, I do some amount of hours of work and hopefully you get an MVP out. Mm. That's a really fuzzy notion. Yeah, yeah. So I um, love just ma- having a, something that's of service but it, it looks like a product. Yeah, um, so that makes me think of, like you're, doing, you're talking about sort of customer validation. Like really figuring out what is the problem they're trying to solve, what is it worth for the client. Yeah, I think that's really smart. Although I think the counter argument might, might be, like fixed bid projects are the worst. Yes. Yeah. So that is a problem with uh, work that requires a variable amount of your time. Mm-hmm. I kind of like short circuited how- that. So I short-circuited that because going from freelance to training, training. Mm-hmm. Uh, with freelance work, I wanted to do more fixed bid. And I did a little bit of fixed bid to try it out because people, I've been hearing that you should do fixed bid work because you can take the amount of hours you think something's gonna take, and time estimation is hard, but you can estimate, and then double, triple, some multiplier of that figure, mm-hmm. quote, that amount of money, mm-hmm. as opposed to saying hours at all. And then if that amount of money is what within their budget, it's what they're looking for, Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're delivering high value there, then they'll say yes, and then you do the work, and hopefully you made a good hourly rate. Now that's theoretical, and I never really did that except for maybe three projects that were really small. Yeah, and I gotta be totally honest with you. When it comes to doing consulting work, when somebody company comes to me and says at NV Labs with the consultancy, I want to build a product with you. Like, there's my job is to convince them why fixed bid is not in their best interest. Okay. Because, um, and I had a whole spiel about how I would do that and show them that like, we're working closely with you, we're bringing you close to the team, we're billing you for only the hours that we bill, right. and this is more fair for you and more fair for us, because if we do a fixed bid, you know, it, beho- it behooves us to try to get it done in the mo- least amount of time, so we make more money. Right. And it behooves you to then try to get us to get as much features done in that, so we end up fighting against each other. Whereas if we can just be really open, honest, and transparent, we can just um, bill and bill and bill. Yeah. Now that's what they say, they're like, oh, you can bill hours willy-nilly? And then I go, no, we do weekly estimates. So every right. week we go through and walk, what are we gonna work on, what do you estimate? But, but what always happens, right? So we do that initial estimate. It's a big initial hourly estimate. Yep. And how quickly do you think that goes, plan goes out the window? Like within the first like two weeks, it yeah. flies out the window because you start building, they start seeing things visibly, and immediately as they start interacting, they learn what they want to change. And if I'm doing a fixed bid, all of a sudden I have to help them manage their money. Yeah. And I don't want to have to do that. Yeah, but that should be your job because they're hiring you, they're hiring you for the value you deliver. Mm-hmm. And you are their, you're their friend. 
you're there, you know, you're a business partner, so to speak, you're, you're on their team. And if you're on their team, you're both trying to manage the, the situation together. You know, you quoted them on something mm-hmm. and uh, that, that amount, if it was fixed, you have to be on the same team because neither of you want scope creep. Neither of you want to, to have the, the train go off the rails. Not only that, even if you're doing weekly, you, you've separated yourself from hourly enough that you could uh, find a WordPress plugin that does a, most of what you're looking for buy that for maybe if it's even if it's a hundred dollars buy that that saves you a week of time and then build from there that's never something you consider doing an hourly because it's saving you uh time which means you make less money hmm. so even on weekly versus hourly you still are giving yourself a little bit of a a leg up and you're a little bit more on the client's team Interesting. That's so interesting how there's so many different ways of looking at it. Yeah, I, I kind of wish I was still doing freelance work sometimes so that I could try to actually try out a lot of these things that I learned about, but I really love that I'm doing training and I can just, there's there's an amount of money, there's the service, and that's it. <laughs> right, and you got like a week's worth of training and whatever you accomplish and that week's worth, you know. Right, well, and I, I can tell them a curriculum. Even if it's rough bullet points, they know what we're going to get into. Mm, okay. So you were hired to do some training, productize that. And um, you said uh, the more niche you are, the higher value your problems are by default. Yes. So I, I was doing Python training, and I'm still doing Python training. I want to reposition myself at some point to go even more niche. And I want to, as much as possible, continue that in my career, even if the, the niche changes. Uh, going from Python training to Django training, I think, would probably be the next step that I try out. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that I won't do Python training, but I want to advertise myself as doing primarily Django training so that uh, folks who are on Django teams understand that's, that's my background, that's the language I speak, that's where I'm coming from. Uh, I'm on the same page. Whereas if someone from a, a data workshop, mm-hmm. or sorry, um, you know, maybe a group of data analysts who do a lot of data science stuff, they contact me and they say, oh, could you teach us Project Jupiter? They know from reading my website, I probably don't know that if I'm doing Django training. Whereas Python training, maybe I do. And I, I don't, you know, I, I don't know a lot of the, the more machine learning kind of data science stuff. Mm-hmm. So being more niche means people know that you can probably deliver the value that they're looking for, as opposed to just something that's kind of in the ballpark. Okay, interesting. Um, cool, so uh, let's see, talk to us about Django Girls Workshop. Yeah. So Django Girls is awesome. Um, the what is it? The, it is a um, it's it's a bunch of things actually. So <laughs> it started at uh, I think EuroPython. I can't remember what year. I want to say 2015. It might have been 2014. Um, but I think it was 2014. It started at a conference and. It was a workshop for, uh, I don't remember how big the first one was, but some number of women to, uh, who had not been programmers before uh, to teach them Django. Okay. And web development in general. So it went through Django, goes through Git, goes through HTML a little bit, CSS, doesn't mm-hmm. go into JavaScript. Uh, it does go into command line tooling a little bit. And so um, that, that workshop, it, it started at a conference and it went viral. So it went, it went a little bit more international. I can't remember where the first ones were. I think the first one in the US might have been in New York, but it is in Australia, it's in uh, various countries in Africa. It is all over the world. And how did it get here? 
it got here. Um, San Diego. Yeah, so to San Diego, we, it's funny, we actually, we, we uh, two of us in San Diego, uh, myself and my friend Tiffany, uh, Tiffany Glenhall, we uh, did a workshop in the Inland Empire. We don't live in the Inland Empire. That is outside of San Diego County. What uh, is the Inland Empire? It, it's a, uh, <laughs> that's a region of California, for those who are not familiar with California. I actually hadn't really ter- heard that term um, before I went up there because I'm in San Diego. I'm, I'm in my little bubble here. I know about Silicon Valley, I know about LA, and then the rest of California is kind of a big, um, you know, blur. <laughs> uh, California is a big state. Yeah. Uh, so it was in Riverside. Riverside, California is where we did that. Okay. And that was the first workshop we did for Django Girls. And that was really exciting because the Django Girls Organizers Manual, they put a lot of work into it. And so mm-hmm. we could not have organized it without I say their help, but I don't even know who they exactly is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a, a manual that tells you what to do, and so this we got is a free workshop. This is this is a free workshop. Yes, so we we got sponsorship, which was uh, that's the big thing that we needed to get that really working. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got sponsorship, and we paid for food. We got the venue. Uh, we found students. We got coaches. Are you getting paid for this? Uh, no. No, so every table has three students and one coach, and that's the, the format. Then we did two of them in San Diego. We did one in July and one in January. And this is to create more web developers? Yes. Is this it is, in, to create more women web developers, or, it's, or is it one of these organizations where it's called Django Girls, but everybody's welcome? Yeah, yeah, everyone is welcome, but it is definitely targeted towards uh, getting more women into tech. Okay. Um, and... You know, it's it's a way of bootstrapping your your local uh, maybe Pilates chapter, uh, your local Django group a little bit, and running a workshop. I mean, getting new new programmers into tech in general is just a really exciting thing. Mm-hmm. So the last one we did in San Diego was uh, about a month ago in January, and I am no longer the main organizer of that in the sense that uh, I am the main organizer, but there's I want to say eight of us now. Wow. Um, and we we really divide up the work well. I think we, we delegate it pretty well. I, the only thing that is my sole job is uh, working with coaches at the moment, which I'm pretty excited about because I like ins- kind of inspiring people to coach. That's great. Yeah, because teaching someone um, can be a really rewarding thing. Yeah. Yeah. What do you, I'm curious. What are the top two or three things that uh, you try to get into coaches' heads to be a good coach? Um... So you're, if you don't know something, that's a good thing from the perspective of your student. You may feel intimidated by that, but if your student asks a question yeah. and they're stumped uh-huh. and you're stumped and you have to go find a, a meta coach, someone floating around the room who a third person's going to help you out, that lets your student know that it is okay to, to not know the answer to things and the people you're working with don't necessarily know the answer to things. That's probably the most important thing is that that whole like the the failure that you think you have flip that on its head that is actually a good thing mm-hmm. um, also to you know empathizing with your students is, is a really big deal if you can and that's why one coach per table uh, of three students is a really good model I think because you're sitting with the same people all day you're gonna naturally make a little bit of a friendship there some kind of connection as opposed to if you're floating around the room you don't really get to chat with any one person in particular mm-hmm. what does empathy sound like what does empathy sound like? So you mean an example as in a conversation? Coach. 
Um, Cause that's just a, what does that word really mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if they're going through a, a, a section and they get it done uh-huh. and they go, um, you know, that, that part was, uh, I think I get it now. And you could go, you know, this next section here, I had a lot of trouble with just FYI. Um, so if you struggle with that, like that's cool because I struggled with it too. Like it's, it's one of the harder sections in the tutorial. So just, just kind of letting them know you're human, they're human, keep it real. Mm-hmm. You're um, going to struggle, but I'm here for you. Yeah, yeah. And if, if they're going through something, um, you know, if they're having trouble uh, typing things in a certain section mm-hmm. uh, because they're not familiar with their new computer's keyboard or because they type slowly or because, whatever that reason is, uh, letting them know that they can go at their own pace. You know, just making sure that people feel comfortable. Wow, that's great. It's um, good to hear. Um, so Django Girls is going good. Um, you also mentioned that you love lightning talks. Yeah. So lightning talks are how I got into speaking. Uh, I hadn't spoken at a conference until last year, mm-hmm. I don't think. Uh, rather, I hadn't given a, a full-form talk at a conference. I'd done at least one lightning talk. Mm-hmm. And I had a lightning talk to do because I'd done probably a dozen lightning talks at my local meetup. Uh, so the reason I love lighting talks for meetups uh, is because if you have a long form talk at a meetup, mm-hmm. that's going to require maybe you know a half an hour of someone to put a presentation together, and it's not necessarily going to be a good presentation. <laughs> not that that you know everyone's <laughs> a bad funny. presenter, but we as humans, it is difficult to convey useful information in a half an hour time to an audience. Not only that, even if it's a stellar presentation, yeah. it's it's awesome. Uh, you may be presenting on a topic that I don't care about, and mm-hmm. I'm one of your audience members. And that's not necessarily bad. I mean, you're not gonna mm-hmm. appease everyone in the room, but yeah. if you give a lightning talk, you're at most boring people for five minutes. <laughs> and so if, if you're giving a talk on some really niche thing no one cares about except for three people in the room, that's fine, because those three people are gonna be really interested for a few minutes. Uh, yeah. So that, that's on the, the audience side of things. The mm-hmm. other side of things with the speaker, it's way less intimidating to give a five minute talk than a half an hour talk. I mean, I was pretty intimidated giving a talk for the first time last year because I had to think of it actually as five lightning talks Mm. because I wanted to chunk it out into that five-minute format I was used to because I know how to make a talk in a five-minute format. You just cut out lots of material and then you've got, you know, a five-minute talk and you figure out what the one thing you want to say is. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it's very approachable for new folks in your group. Yeah. And at conferences, it's it's one of the most fun times. I love the lightning talk hour. Yeah, um, I used to run the Ruby users group in mm-hmm. Orlando, and I always used to, I, you know, when we first started out, we'd have one talk per meetup, and then yeah. I, at some point I was like, okay, we just need to do two. Yeah. Because I realized, like, because, like, if my worst nightmare is that somebody comes to one talk, it's like a 45-minute talk, and they leave going, oh, my God, that was so boring. I'm not yep. coming back. But I knew if I had two speakers, the odds of them both sucking <laughs> was pretty low. Yeah. So yeah. I totally get the idea of uh, doing more lightning talks, or even maybe just do one 20-minute talk and then a couple lightning talks it would be also refreshing depending on the setup. Yeah, and a lot of our local meetups do that where they have a dual format. Mm-hmm. The Python meetup and the JavaScript meetup, we switch to um, pure lightning talks wow. most of the time. 
And I, I really like that because it, it really it constrains people. Because you know, if you if you had to give your talk that you gave last night in a five minute format, I bet you could do it. It would be a very different talk. Yeah. But you could still give something. Yeah. I could yeah, be part of it. Um, cool. Oh, okay. So one of the things that I thought was really unique when I was doing my research on you was that you do these weekly Python chats live, live Python yep, chats. Yep. So people can join in. They have any questions about Python. Yep. You're there to answer them. How did that get started? Yeah. So that got started kind of by accident in a way. So I, I had been thinking about already uh, with a friend of mine who I, I meet with every week online. Um, I'd been chatting about doing a screencast or doing some kind of thing that would teach people Python in little chunks. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really like the idea of doing a screencast because I felt that I'd need to produce the screencast or somehow have a script and go through it, and that that seemed um, that seemed like a big deal. You know what you're doing now. This is a this is a format that people can expect some good quality from. It's a recorded thing, and, and you've got a nice setup that you've got here. I just had a webcam on my computer, so I did a live event uh, on Crowdcast. Uh, I don't know how I found the system, but on regular expressions. And I did that because I had a tutorial that I had to give at PyCon. So that was accepted, and now I go, okay, now I need to make curriculum for the tutorial because the tutorial is a three hour long thing. So I did two 90 minute um, Crowdcast events on regular expressions, and I liked the the format so much because a whole bunch of people showed up to the first one. It was like 60 to 80 people or so, I think, mm-hmm. showed up. and. That was really exciting to have people chatting in there and asking questions about stuff. So I decided I just wanted to do a semi-freeform, somewhat structured chat every week on Python, and I just kept it up. Okay, so there's one thing here I want to point out that yep. you did that I think was really intelligent. So you had this talk you had to give at a big conference, yeah, and you're like, okay, here's the material, but I need some way to validate that this is material and get feedback. Right. So it's like I got to test it. Right. That's smart. So you so you said, oh, well, I can do a I can do a live event. And that way, you know, whoever shows up shows up, and I can run through it, and I can get their feedback. That way, when I go to the official conference, it'll be good. I kind of wish more people would do that. Huh? Yes. Yeah. I actually wish I'd done that with my talks. <laughs> I have only given one talk so far, but the tutorial, mm-hmm. I knew I needed to do that because that was three hours. Yeah. There was no way I could go in giving a tutorial for the first time without kind of testing the material somewhat. Now that I'm doing training. So I was already basing the, the beginning of that off of some regular expressions material I already had in my curriculum, but I did not have three hours of regular expressions material because that would be pretty boring in a 20 minute, or, or sorry, a 20 hour uh, yeah. you know, p- intro to Python class. Yeah. Uh, so stealing from my own curriculum is a great way because it's already validated. But if I, it's not validated, going to your local meetup and giving a talk or holding some kind of online event, mm-hmm. um, good ways to test it out. So that's, yeah, so that's if you find yourself that you're intimidated by the idea of going to one of these big conferences and giving a talk there, you provided a great way to get started, like just going and presenting at your local meetup or maybe even, you know, tweeting about it, do do a live event. Now, so the other thing that that I have to admit, it's so amusing for me to hear you say, oh, screencasting, that was too intimidating. I'll do a live event because somehow I'm coming at that at the completely opposite angle. Right. I would look at a live event and go, oh my God, like, it's intimidating. People can like tell me they don't understand to my face and tell me I don't know what I'm talking about to my face. But if yeah. I do a screencast, I can make sure it's, it's polished and it's like exactly the way that it's supposed to be and it's mostly right. And I yep. can just, I can do the post-production 
and I won't have screw-ups because I'm gonna have lots of screw-ups and I'm definitely gonna screw up during a live event, so I'm not gonna do that. And and I started out with you know crappy cameras too, right. um, but my logic was just, if I do post-production, I edit it together, I know I'm gonna say everything right and there's not gonna be people there who can raise their hand and tell me I'm wrong. Yeah, well it's funny because we're coming at this from very different places. You know, <laughs> Code School, you didn't do anything live. You did everything, you know, it, it, mm -hmm. it, there's a lot of production there. And I, I, even before that, I think you were saying you did screencasts oh, at yeah. the company you worked at. Yeah. And I'd never really done that. I'd never just recorded myself and then had someone watch it later. I always had an audience I could communicate with, which is why talks are a little intimidating for me. Tutorial, I can ask a question of the audience and expect an answer and then pause for an awkward amount of time until someone feels obligated to answer. And with a live event, you can do that. And so it's more like a, a group conversation. So I, I'm really comfortable with a group conversation, uh, much more comfortable than I am just broadcasting myself. Because I have no idea whether is everyone just, is no one saying anything because they're confused? I don't know. I can't read the audience too well. Oh, wow. I think I have some fears I still need to get over. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I do too, just on the other side of things. Yeah. Um, two, we've got two last things to discuss. Um, you're part of a mastermind group. Yeah. Can you talk about what that is and how that helps you? Yeah, so that mastermind group, uh, it was, <laughs> mastermind group is a fancy term that really just means uh, if you're a freelancer, for example, finding other freelancers who can be your support network. And you meet regularly and you kind of hold each other accountable in some way. Either you meet and you talk about one person's thing every week and you rotate who that person is, or you talk about a topic, or you just kind of keep it free form and you just make goals for yourself and you try to talk about whether you made those goals where you met those goals. And so I met with a, a friend who I'd met actually just at a conference, uh, Buddy, Buddy Lindsay, who does a Go Django screencast series. And I thought it was really cool he did Django screencasts. And I wanted to maybe do a Python screencast or something. And decided I didn't want to do a screencast, ended up doing weekly Python chat instead. But we were talking about teaching, we were talking about our business, our businesses, so to speak. He, you know, he's doing that on the side a little bit more. It's a side business. But for me, I have, my main business and my side businesses are kind of all in the same you know, bucket. Mm -hmm. And so we talked about that and we, we just met regularly and we made goals for each other. And then uh, another friend uh, came along and joined, um, Eric Holscher from Read the Docs, and we just meet every week and chat about our businesses. So having folks who can hold you accountable if you are freelancing, if you don't have coworkers um, is really important because it's difficult to introspect. Mm -hmm. You know, it's difficult to say, I need a mailing list or I need to update my website in this way. Whereas your friend can, can tell you that. They can tell you, you know, your website, I read in this book, uh, you, sh you should have a mailing list linked on your website. And um, I, I know I don't have one, but you should have one for these reasons. Mm -hmm. And then your friend can do the opposite to you. Mm -hmm. They can say, you know, you don't have a mailing list now, you need it for these reasons. It's okay. difficult to do that with yourself. So Talking you, to yourself is awkward. And so how would you get started with that? You just find other people that are, that you uh, are doing the same sort of thing that you're doing. And you say, yes. hey, I want to create. And if you Google, I know if you Google mastermind group and like mm -hmm. how to create a mastermind group, there's lots of good resources. Yeah, there are resources. There. And the thing is, you don't, they don't need to necessarily be doing the same thing that you're doing. Hmm. Uh, they could be doing something similar. So for example, the two folks that I meet with, neither of them is... Um, they wouldn't consider themselves trainers or freelancers full-time. 
but we're all interested in teaching a little bit mm-hmm. and uh, documentation a little bit and consulting a little bit um, as well as just kind of code in general and we're all kind of in the Python world mm-hmm. but I also sometimes meet with um, a friend who's interested in training and doesn't do any Python uh, and I've just met folks online and we, we try to keep in touch a little bit and I don't always call it a mastermind group but I do try to keep a little bit of a format and make goals Interesting. I don't always stick to those goals, though. <laughs> What's the format? Um, the format is mostly just catching up on what we've accomplished since the last time we met uh-huh. and uh, talking about what we want to accomplish until the next time. That is the only thing that's really required, I think. Yeah. But I'm very bad about formats, so you could add a lot more structure than that. Uh, I mean, I think, I think that's perfect. I think that's a great, simple way to start out. Yeah. To just say, you know, I want to create a, it's almost like a support group. It's like we're creating our little support group of business owners or even freelancers mm-hmm. and we all have goals we want to improve this so let's all just hang out and discuss our problems I mean that's yeah. how that's half the value so I run a technical accelerator called starter studio in Orlando mm-hmm. and it's a three-month program half the value that people get out of it is simply sitting next to people that are having the same problems yep. that they are so they can just say hey how'd you solve this yeah um, so yeah, that's why, and that's also I feel like why our mastermind groups are useful. And yeah. I know that as Code School grew, grew bigger, I joined uh, the CEO group, and that was really useful. Yeah, I was gonna say, you know, the mastermind group idea has inspired me to uh, have the local meetup organizers meet, and oh, we shit. just did that for the first time Great. last month. We're gonna do it again next month, and it was really cool. So we were on a hangout, but we're going to meet in person next time and just talk about, you know, what problems our our groups are facing. And I just love the idea of whatever you're doing, if you have other people who are doing the same thing who you don't get to communicate with with regularly, make a little support network. That's so smart. Um, So lastly, the Python Foundation. Yeah, the Python Software Foundation. Yeah, so this is the foundation behind the Python language, and you became a director. Yeah, so um, there are 11 directors. Uh, there's, well, there's 10 directors right now. There's usually 11 directors. Um, and what's the vision of the Python Foundation? The, uh, the mission statement is uh, twofold. I haven't memorized it, but I do know the, the idea of the mission statement. So yeah, we I want... Don't tell anyone. Yeah, yeah, don't, don't, no, one, no one's going to know, right? right? Um, <laughs> we want to move the language forward. Uh-huh. We want to uh, foster the development of the Python language and uh, grow the folks using Python and then the number of folks using it. But we also want to foster uh, foster the community. So grow the community and make sure that the community is inclusive, as diverse, as welcoming. Mm-hmm. And so those are kind of the two uh, missions. And they, they go together quite a bit. Great. And, and you enjoy being a part of it. Yes. So I... Uh, I was elected as a director at the Python Software Foundation last year. I think about 20-some people ran and 11 were elected, so it was kind of a coin flip that I was elected. I'm guessing most people who voted for me read my little statement mm-hmm. and judged that way, because that's the only way, if you haven't met people, that you, you vote for them. Um, what does that allow you to do that, so as a director? I vote in the, um, the meetings that we hold uh, every uh, once or twice a month. And we vote on which Django Girls workshops should get money because we have money that we... Um, so if, if you run a meetup group 
Mm-hmm. You can get money from the Python Software Foundation reimbursing your meetup fees. Mm. If you're doing a Django Girls workshop, you can ask the Python Software Foundation to be one of your sponsors mm-hmm. to help you out there and they can give you a grant. Uh, if you are doing a Python workshop, you know, if, if you're running a conference. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of groups that uh, need help in some way. It's not always financial help. Mm-hmm. And we do have a, a grants working group uh, that helps with a lot of that. Uh, now, but we, we vote on a variety of things. A lot of them being financial, some of them being a little bit more community-based. Are there any paid employees of the Python Foundation? There are, yeah. Uh, there's, unfortunately, I can't name all the paid employees because I'm not a very good director, um, but Eva does a ton of work and Betsy does a ton of work. Those are the two people who I communicate with most regularly. Are there developers working on Python full-time as part of the foundation? or? No, it's more no, about... No, no, actually. So uh, it's interesting that we, we, don't, uh, um, we don't pay for uh, developers to work on Python. That is something they do as a volunteer basis. Their company pays for them. We could, but that's not a step that's been taken so far. So the folks who work on the Python Software Foundation, they run PyCon, the big Python programming conference, PyCon US, that is. Okay. They make sure that along with the directors that other Python conferences around the world get funding and they do day-to-day. Trademark work, uh, growth of the community, giving the directors a ton of support mm. and making sure that the pieces kind of come together. Nice. All right, final question. Why is there a Christmas tree behind me? <laughs> is, that a real, the, is that really a Christmas tree? It is a, I think it's plastic. Yeah, it's fake. Um, <laughs> I'm not a very holiday-centered person, and so I did not put that up. Uh, but it is up currently. It's not March yet, so that's <laughs> fine, right? <laughs> we can you can have a Christmas tree up after Christmas. It's perfectly fine. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I don't know. I've... I do you not like it? No, I think it's kind of neat. Okay. <laughs> it's pretty. It's, it doesn't look too Christmassy. Like if it had like with all decked out with like uh, ornaments. And yeah. Stuff. Well, if we took down the ornaments and the the lights, it would just be a tree, and we could have a fake tree yeah. in our room. <laughs> it could be a python tree. Yeah. Something Python like tree like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, thanks for being here on and the show. Thanks for tuning in to Open Source Craft. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure you subscribe on iTunes or YouTube or follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Um, sometimes we have live shows, so keep an eye out for that as well. And thank you again, Trey, for inviting us here to San Diego to interview you and uh, in your wonderful house. Thank you. And uh, thanks for being on the show. And uh, I'll be sure to tune in. Um, I'm going to post all these show notes on uh, codepop.com so you can follow the links because I know Trey mentioned a bunch of different things and I know I want to check out.